What's up, you absurd junkies? Welcome back to another episode of Absurd Curiosity Podcast. Uh, for those who are returning, welcome. We're so glad to have you. For those who are new, we mostly talk about science, technology, medicine, really anything that interests us, we talk about it. But most importantly, we laugh and have a great time while doing so. As always, I'm joined by the beautiful Stephen Pallotta. What's up, guys? And the nuclear shaman himself... Sean Pickett, a.k.a. Nuclear Geek. What's up, everyone? This podcast was really fun to record. John Powell is an eccentric guy that's going to revolutionize the aerospace industry. And he's he's an incredible person that makes something for nothing. Like, he's one of those guys that you can leave in the garage for an hour and then come back and he'd be like, hey, man, I just made a plasma reactor out of, uh, I don't know, two RC cars and a roll of duct tape. I mean, he's just he's just an insane, bonkers dude. It's it's quite incredible to watch and hear the story he tells. Um, so I hope you guys enjoy the conversation that we have here today. Thank you. The man we're bringing on today uh, changed the way NASA looks at their contracts. This man is a spaceman with space hair, John Powell. How you doing, man? Doing good. <laughs> I wasn't sure how you're gonna like that intro, but it is true. You know, whenever NASA found out that you were 17 bidding on these contracts, they were like, probably like, okay, maybe we need to put some stipulations in place. Yeah, I, I single-handedly ruined it for all the high school NASA contractors. <laughs> <laughs> and John, I am loving your workshop behind you there. So oh, thank you. And so you said that's that's Bell, the the submarine. This is Bell. This is our submarine. We do it. What we've been doing a lot lately is life support system development and life support system testing. Yeah, how has that been going, by the way? Like, have you guys put it underwater or done any tests recently? Well, we were actually three months away from first dive when COVID hit. Oh, I remember you telling and us so before. Hold. So we've been doing a big overhaul, you know, let us do kind of go to our phase two of our life support systems. And the next thing on on the slate is a six hour captive, you know, all catch closed life support system test. This is, is that a, a nuclear powered submarine? <laughs> no, but I was tempted to put a fuser in the background just so I can say I have a nuclear powered submarine. You know, the, <laughs> the, the, the fuser device. But not a good idea. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah you, you, would, you would have the Department of Energy like knocking on your door as soon as we, we released this if you had a nuclear power submarine. Um, Again. Is the test going to be done right there in your in your workshop? Uh, the the captive test is right here in the shop. Basically, we have one person goes in and he's wired up with all the sensors mm -hmm. and vitals, and then we're monitoring you know all the things in the in the atmosphere in the sub, mm -hmm. and we close it up, bring the system up, and then start doing system tests. So, what yeah. kind of accommodations do you offer them? Are they got like a toilet in there, bed? What's uh, what do they no, what do they have? It used to be a, t original design was a two-person sub, and that's because we had originally went with all of NASA's data on mm. life support, CO2 mm. levels and such, and then we discovered when we first running the tests that we couldn't get our numbers down low. Everything was just so out, whacked out. And then we discovered that NASA and OSHA has two different views of what is adequate life support. Ah. It's like, run on the station is double what is mandatory evacuation number mm. for coal miners in Virginia. Really? Because, and you just read um, Scott Kelly's book? 
endurance? No, I haven't, but I'm sure it's great. All about the CO2 levels. Hmm. His girlfriend would get to talk to him once a week and she could guess the CO2 levels based on his mood. And wow. Yeah. Do you, do you have a CO2 scrubber in there or, or how do you manage oh, a we CO2? Have, we have a CO2 scrubbers. We actually have nine wow. CO2 scrubbers. I say it was a wow. two person sub, but we, the entire aft cabin area is made up by the additional life support system volume. Oh, wow. Because we decided the standard doesn't cut it. And we're bringing it down to regular OSHA, OSHA standards, you know, for parts per million of CO2 and particulate. Mm -hmm. And it just took so much more volume. That's unfortunate, but I'm glad that you guys were like, mm, is, is oxygen really needed? So I'm, I'm glad that you guys took a step back and said, let's, let's, let's do it correct and even exceed what NASA does. Who's NASA going in first to do that? Well, right now we're running at about 1,100 parts per million, mm -hmm. which is what you get inside your house. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's, that's the pretty decent. The station runs at 10,000 parts per million. And that's the danger fatal dose for coal miners is 5,000. Jesus. Wow. I didn't oh, know just, that. I mean, it makes sense. I, I didn't know that. And it's not like a big secret. There's been congressional hearings on it, and astronauts have talked about hmm. it all the way back to the shuttle era. Um, now, it's one of those you know, tough it out kind of things. Now, the parts, the parts per million is at sea level i'm guessing the at sea level. yeah they cite that at the partial pressures are running on a station that they can get away with a higher amount but all the medical data in the studies don't support that uh, this is something i'm gonna what have up? to read into because i'm i'm into what? space medicine and it's I'm learning a lot about radiation but i do need to take a step back and look at oxygen because i feel like that's that's number one what you need right <laughs> loss on um, the problem with the eyes and everything they're having that's attributing to low gravity uh, even back pain like 70 percent of astronauts experience huge back pain as their spine just really elongates yeah also of co2 of high co2 exposure and that's that's damaging their spines is high to yeah, uh, high co2 exposure no, i know the the oh. loss and the problem with the eyes really i was gonna ask yeah so because people on, wow. on nuclear submarines that also have the high CO2 levels hmm. get the same symptom as the astronauts do. And they don't really get, you know, a lot of zero G time on nuclear submarines. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting, know, interesting that retinal nerves oh. have that issue. Um, but also, I think another issue that, that it's not just the CO2 that compounds it. It's also whenever you're in gravity, right, you have your blood's being pushed down, right? And it doesn't yeah. stay in your abdomen or your head but microgravity you don't really have any of those systems so like you've got a lot of pressure in your head mm -hmm. that's normally not there and probably blood flow so you can maybe get away with a little more <sighs> i don't know if that's a good idea though <laughs> no it, it's it's kind of detrimental over time because we've evolutionarily adapted to have one g of force on us and our eyes can sustain one g of force with blood pressure and everything yeah. um but as soon as you remove that, your eyes do deteriorate. Actually, I was reading a paper about a month ago that astronauts started having uh, their eyesight started deteriorating after two weeks of being in space. So, like, things that they wow. could read wow. on a paper, they couldn't read anymore because their eyes were yeah. just so, under so much pressure and just trying to adapt to the zero-g 
So do you think that's zero is zero G or do you think that's CO2 a massive difference in CO2? Or I don't want to speak on it. Lower oxygen, higher CO2. From the, I'm or, not going to. radiation blasting their eyes. I throw out there is there's all these submarine studies about mm. submarine sailors having all these similar problems. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be a disconnect. Mm. That's yeah. one of the questions yeah. I was going to bring up later. I think. Actually, I'm gonna save that question for later because we want to get into the Mars segment, and then we'll ask it. We can it. get carried away. <laughs> yeah. So, since we've got that out of the way, I'm glad that you know the submarine's working. You guys are doing a lot of uh, work there. Tell us about what breakthroughs has JP Aerospace made since we last had the last podcast. I mean, I know you guys were just getting started on uh, was it the ion thrusters or plasma well, thrusters. We did We've been doing the plasma thrusters for about 10 years. Oh, okay. Well, then I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Oh, my God. We've been ramping up. And the last three or four months, we've actually really been ramping up. And we got a series of about 15 firings that we've identified that we're going to be doing in the next two months. Oh, wow. Okay. Really great progress. We've been doing a lot of these little little guys. We showed it last before. time. The little, the little, um, the little guys? Oh, no, that's, well, that's different than what you showed yeah, us last different. time. What this is, see if I can point to it and hold my mic. <laughs> it's, um, it's an acrylic, uh, paraffin mm -hmm. potassium hybrid. Like a mouthful. <laughs> what we're, what we're using these as pest blocks for our MHD plasma units that mag magnetohydrodynamic and other big mouthful. Mm -hmm. And so we can we can make a lot of these. Here's. That was when we just fired. This is when we fired a few weeks before that. Is that cast? Yeah. Is that like you pour? You pour those? Oh, is that the acrylic is assembled and welded together, and then we cast the paraffin potassium into it. And then this gets dropped into a unit that has a big stack of magnets on either side, the neodymium magnets, and we're running at about 0.6 Tesla. That's um, a lot of Tesla. I mean, uh, for a small object like that dangerous thing we do isn't the rocket engines it's not the submarine yeah. it's playing with those magnets yeah that's that's a rare earth magnet that's not even electrified huh so it's just always on yeah yeah we're working uh, on an electromagnet version of it okay. so it's safer so we could turn it on and turn it off because you can't turn off a rare earth magnet right it's, is that just a is that just an exposed magnet or is there a housing around that thing to protect it or is it just exposed oh no we we do a stack it's almost like stacking nuclear rod <laughs> oh so it's a series of, of, of the magnets and things and we stack sets below and then above and then we disassemble it all after the firing so the nozzles are you making those is that like adaptive additive manufacturing or like the 3d printing metals or what's how is that just like a cast how are you making those no it's a ceramic bathroom tile glued together and we drill a hole in it <laughs> i knew it i knew it was gonna be something super simple wow. that is awesome yeah. dude that's ingenuity. so but, but but what would you do that so yeah. how's that scale up though is that that when that scales up it, it would be something that's more like well scaled up we're using an mhd magnetic nozzle there won't be a physical nozzle there oh oh wow and right now that's represented by the magnets and the electrodes and we so are those the are electrodes the... we're excited about um one of the big problems with MHD systems, and like in combined cycle motors and things like that, is electrode erosion. You know, and you have that on ion engines, a big problem, the electrodes erode. But we're using ablative electrodes out of graphene. 
Huh. So you have the graphics, you have the conductivity. Yeah. But plastic, they're actually just PLA, gra PLA graphene. So we print the electrodes on the 3D printer. And it's during the firing, they're on a spring. So they're pushed in. You know, like the 10-hour the candles, mm -hmm. as they burn, they get pushed in. Yeah. It's the same. But since there's um, graphene PLA, it's conductive, you know, instead of copper electrodes like we use now. And as they, they don't clog up. Because they just melt and burn off, or not burn off, just ablate, and you're getting fresh electrode being shoved in the entire firing process. What are you shooting right. for those electrodes to last? Doing, these these run run about three minutes, so these are three minute burns. Okay. You know, we're always into you know for something like this, you're usually talking about a three second burn, but mm -hmm. um, and we want to start stepping up because we're going to need them to last, you know, hundreds of hours. Earlier, I was earned by early, like a month ago, I was watching your YouTube channel. By the way, guys, if you're listening to the podcast or even watching it, definitely go subscribe to John's YouTube channel. It's absolutely fantastic. He teaches you so much, and he has some really great shots of the earth. But one of your episodes, or yeah, episodes, uh, you were talking about when you met Deke Slayton. And I am a huge fan, and I actually, I'm ashamed to admit it, I didn't know who Deke Slayton was until I watched the Apple TV show called uh, For All Mankind. And it was brilliant. Mm -hmm. It was brilliant. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it, no. Oh my god, go watch it. I think they nailed Deke. But whenever, I, I thought he was a fictional character, and then I was watching your YouTube video, I was like, oh my god, this dude is real. Larger-than-life guy. You know, <laughs> but he really was a real person. He was a badass in the show, so learning that he was actually a badass IRL was even even better. Yeah, he kind of either liked you or didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so can you go like? He didn't have a lot of brains. <laughs> can you uh, tell us your experience about Deke? Well, like like I talk about in the video is when I first met him. This mm -hmm. was way back in the early days, uh, in the late seventies, and we were working with. Space Services Incorporated. It was the first commercial space system. That was in the days where NASA would call up all your vendors and tell them not to do business with you and things like that. Mm. And actually, they shut them down. There was books and everything about it because the NASA guys confessed to doing it. Oh, wow. But they, they actually put, the, it was the first commercial flight to space. They Their first rocket was the Conestoga 1. And it was a Minuteman. Minuteman 1 refurb that they converted to a launch vehicle. And they put a payload on it and fired it out of Texas. I think oh, it went wow. to about 280 miles. Oh. And then their next one was going to be their orbital vehicle. This is just a ballistic up and down. Yeah. And we were contracted with them at the time to make the upper stage, essentially a generic satellite. Mm -hmm. You know, and we were basing it on the Explorer 24, which was NASA's idea of a generic satellite that you could put anything onto it. Mm -hmm. You know, have a standard on us for telemetry and power. And we've been talking to him on the phone. And back in the day where you wrote letters, <laughs> or if you got a response in three weeks, it's like, wow, they must be really excited that was fast. <laughs> we'd gone through the whole process and working through about six months, and then they were gonna sign <clears> the deal you know, that we were going to be the provider and they, and they were going to guy, send a guy up to sign. And that was to say, that was when we were all 17 and <laughs> uh Oh, we're in trouble. And then we found out 
they're sending Deke. Because Deke Slayton had retired from NASA and got picked up as the president of space services. Oh, no. <laughs> and times these guys will be figurehead presidents. Deke was not a figurehead president. <laughs> he was in the weeds working on the rocket, working the systems, you know, and wow. getting those guys into ship shape. <laughs> And he was going to come up with the contract, and we just thought we were dead. <laughs> um, we had talked to a bunch of our business advisors, you know, more older people. <laughs> just, Can you, and we'll make you something important, whatever title says, no, you got to do it. You've been talking to him on the phone, right? Yeah, he knows you. You have to go do this. And so we literally went to the airport. Well, this is the end of it all. He comes, you know, down the escalator and walking up. And... I introduced myself and it was just the world stopped. He just stood there and looked at me. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was that, where is your father look? You know? And you were um, 17 at the time, right? Yeah. Wow. Um, I just shake him, shake him in my shoes, didn't say anything, uh, just out of fear. And he, then he just stuck out his hand and said, I'm Deke. It's like, I'm JP. <laughs> and it was all okay. Did you guys ever um, work on that project together? I don't think their second no. rocket didn't launch, did it? No, they ran into all kinds of legal issues. NASA kind of shut them down. They got a temporary waiver to do one of the rockets, and they had a problem on the pad, and it didn't launch. And then the investors pulled out, and it was all for naught. So he, he didn't die in the spaceship, like in um. No, he didn't die in the spaceship. In the show. Yeah. Hey, while we're talking about shows, can we ask? Are are you able to talk about your experience on the UFO show for Showtime? Right. Oh. You know, I did three of them lately, and I'm not sure which one the time was, but they were all about the same. <laughs> okay, uh, I didn't know there was three. And they were they were all really great folks to come out and work with. Did they show us working on one of the V's in the parking lot? No. Uh, wait, no. Was it, no, I think I'm the only one that saw it. Did you guys watch the HBO it? show? I, I don't have it, so I haven't watched it. Okay. So the one I just heard I, you were on it. Yeah, so I think I told you this earlier whenever we were setting up. Basically, um, the way it's shot is they, they talk about the Phoenix lights and everything, which was funny because, you know, <laughs> I, was, I was like, as we were watching this, I was watching this with my dad. And I was like, oh, Phoenix Lights. Yeah, we were talking about John Powell like that. And then, like, just for to humor me, in the show, we just see the back of your head, right? And I think you're at that desk right there, soldering. And it's, like, yellow lights everywhere. It's dark everywhere around. And I see the hair, and I'm like, no fucking way. And I start pointing at the screen. <laughs> and I was like, I just knew the hair. And then you're there you are. And then you're like, yeah. Um, and you say something along the lines was, yeah, I thought it was a competitor. <laughs> yeah as i've seen you are not the only folks that were building great big v-shaped vehicles that move silently and and there's a couple guys that were working out of holloman air force base which is down that way mm -hmm. and i always wonder say i have no insider information or anything like that but you know i look at the artwork people have done and mm. hear the eyewitness testimony and it's like Ooh, I bet they lost their gig after that. <laughs> you let one of your vehicles go and drift over a population zone? <laughs> I what how it struck me. That's that's so, that's and, nuts. You know, it's like you know they went with a little flatter angle than they should have because they would have had. 
no things like that. <laughs> no, I don't know how all these things work, but from my understanding, right? So you build the thing, you build like let's say you build the plane, and then you give it to the military for testing most of the time, right? So it could have been like the Air Force that messed it up and like flew it over. Yeah. Okay. And we have built really big vehicles and deliver them to the Air Force, but that was not one of ours. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you're forced to say yeah. that. Your contracts yeah, are telling yeah. you. <laughs> I can neither confirm nor so, deny. Your handler. John, <laughs> you, you clearly know a thing or two about experimental vehicles, right? Uh, I, think, I think that's safe to say. So, <laughs> safe to say, right? Uh, I, was, I was talking with Cole literally just a few days ago, and somehow, I think it was actually because of, um, of the show that Cole was watching, that's how he knew about it. I think I just stumbled, it, uh, stumbled upon it on YouTube. But there was this concept called um, Sea Dragon. And I, I don't know if it was right. in the 70s. You've heard of it. I did not know him personally. He has passed away. Bob Truax. But his house is about a mile and a half from here. Oh, and wait, that's the engineer that did that. Well, he's trying to save money to get somebody or raise money for Sea Dragon. He built the engine for the Evil Knievel Sky Cycle. Also in that, in that build in that garage in his house, a mile and a half from here. <laughs> That's nuts. That's nuts. And I was also and the watching. Sky sea Dragon engine. Wait, he built a miniature Sea Dragon engine for the Sky Cycle. Yeah, the the, the original before they got the into the Max kerosene blocks Gigantor engine. It's going to be a pressure engine. That's not how it ended up, but all the first early iterations were a pressure engine, and the Sky Cycle was just a pressure engine. Now, what's a pressure engine, if you don't mind me asking? You put water in it, you add so much energy to it that it's either going to explode or take you to the moon, and off you go. <laughs> oh, wait, so it's a steam engine, or not really a steam engine, yeah. but... Pressure? Like, you just yeah. add air to the water? But you have to get it just right, or else you boil and bad things happen, you know, like a boiler explosion. <laughs> I don't want to get too dark here, but you remember the Flat Earther that basically created a steam rocket oh and he actually built his vehicle and the vehicle he built wasn't bad no he it wasn't flew it, he crashed it he retired a unnamed tv show offered him a bunch of money to put back point its nose in the air and push the button again and it killed him was it jackass no, <laughs> no it wasn't no. <laughs> and you know the guy was kind of crazy <laughs> but the thing that killed him was you know he retired he didn't have much money they said if he could just climb the thing one more time and push the button after he wrecked it mm. it should never oh. be flown again you know i can understand that you guys broke one last hurrah and i can retire yeah and it killed him i remember mm. i remember watching it and his parachute came out and i was like oh well that secondary is going to come in handy and then he started going down i was like oh my god i don't think he has a secondary he did was it all recorded cole yes it was, it's yeah it was all recorded oh, wow. yeah his friends and family were watching him yeah you know the, the failure was the same failure as the sky cycle failure you know an evil can even sky cycle when it came off the ramp the primary parachute came out and drug mm -hmm. as it was climbing away oh my god mm -hmm. I, I, I i need to watch all of evil can stunts because I mean, like, obviously I know, like, I've watched them jump, like, 14 buses and then, like, crash in the side of them, and you're like, dude, how are you alive? But... Oh, yeah. yeah, he survived the Sky Cycle, which wasn't a, a motorcycle, it was just a rocket they pointed over the canyon. 
you know, but Bob Truax, the guy that built or designed the Sea Dragon, mm-hmm. built the Sky Cycle. How much do you know about Sea Dragon? I, I don't want to go too far away oh, from that. It seems like you, you must know a good amount. Wikipedia basics. It, it was really big in the 80s. They were really pushing it, you know, going big. Do you think it's feasible? I don't think it's economically feasible. I think technically <laughs> it's <laughs> a giant pile of money. <laughs> All eggs in one basket. There's not enough money on the planet to do 10 development flights of Skydragon. Mm. And the things you have. What about the, the concept? Just the concept of launching from from water? Well, that's actually been done quite a bit. You know, they took the uh, Arrow High sounding rocket and to save launch costs, figured out a way to launch it out of freshwater lakes. And they did a lot of sounding rockets that way. Wow. Actually, a really solid idea. Yeah, because I, I mean, the, the concept of Sea Dragon, I was like, okay, do we, do we really need a rocket that big and something to have that much of a payload? Like, meh, maybe at some point. But the, the concept of just launching from, uh, you know, being fairly you know, buoyant and launching from the water, they talked about how um, suppression of noise, especially if you're going to have that much thrust, the, the, the noise, the, the decibel at, at that point would just be um, deafening. Um, so being able to put it out in the water somewhere would be a better better option oh yeah it definitely has a lot of things going for it but the thing is it's so huge you know the cost of doing each one kind of prohibit doing a full intensive test program to actually get it working so you're in that catch 22. it was the one thing when i was watching for, for all mankind that i was like nope no nah, that nah, <laughs> uh-uh, no way <laughs> really it wasn't the plutonium on board that did it for you no nope, that was the thing and that, that was one of the things i wanted to ask you later on so first Actually, let me get to the, the actual question I want to ask. What do you think about the current NASA SLS program? Do you think it's really even needed? Like it, I mean, all of it can be taken um, care of by Starship. It's, it's, a, it's a terrible program. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to say it's a hoax? Is <laughs> that it's using up the energies of some very talented people. Mm. You know, great yeah. engineers that are just spinning their wheels, developing things that shouldn't yeah. be developed, and burning that genius away mm-hmm. from mm. SLS. You know, that's amongst the other things, <laughs> one he, of the big tragedies of the program. I love that's sad. I love rockets in general, and you know, it, it's kind of sad to see. They, they keep saying like this is the most powerful rocket ever made, and it's like. It's not even fully assembled yet, and the prototype in Starbase is going to just blow it out of the water. It's going to be even more powerful. So, like, and it's, it's like reusable. That's how our government just, like, mm. does, just, they just, like, la, 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 SpaceX doesn't exist, you know? <laughs> John, why do you think that is, uh, as far as, I mean, like, like Sean said, it literally feels like our government's, like, la, 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 SpaceX doesn't exist. Like, I mean, you know, like, even for yourself, get, getting support, and for, I feel like for, for companies that really can do so much, the government just pretends, you know, great companies don't exist. It's jobs. It's jobs in congressional districts. Mm-hmm. Like, so policy, sadly, so sadly, very job. true. You know, they didn't want to have that segmented solids. They wanted Aerojet to build the unsegmented solid because it was cheaper, it was safer. But literally, the testimony from the Utah senator, we will veto the shuttle if it part of it isn't made in Utah by Thiokol. And that's public testimony. You can find it on C-SPAN. And then after Challenger, they were pulling the contract and going back to the Aerojet single monolithic Mm -hmm. um, boosters instead of the segmented guys. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happened again. If Thiokol doesn't get the contract, the shuttle program won't exist. And they publicly testified to that, and Thiokol got the contract. That's... 
That yeah, sounds like so Blue Origin. You mean Sue Origin, Cole? Sue Origin, yeah, <laughs> Sue Origin. And actually, the thing was, I was looking at getting a job there, and it's just like I can't, I can't apply there. I, I don't want to mm. apply there. I, I'm pretty sure I'd do some great things there, but I just yeah. can't. Good I can't tell Amazon everything. I don't want anything to do with it. <laughs> uh, it's funny because I'm not sure if you've seen this, John, but uh, their new robot. Like the robot butler, like little dog, it's called Astro. Oh, yeah. did you see that? You know, it doesn't have sensors at the bottom of itself, so it just like throws itself down the stairs. Like even it doesn't want to be part of Amazon. Yeah, even it doesn't want to be a part of the Amazon. So if there's stairs, it's just like <laughs> yeet. <laughs> uh, oh my god, that's terrible. So we were talking the other day about um, about you know interplanetary life, and then you know life is so abundant out there, just mathematically and theoretically there's got to be aliens right they got to exist so at some point they had to have also created probably von neumann probes you know life is so infinite or time is so infinite or yeah. so vast that they send out these von neumann probes you probably know what those are right and so oh, yeah. yeah so these self-replicating probes that are that are potentially you know should be everywhere like if we start looking deep into space and hopefully with the james webb telescope coming out maybe we'll find some of these but you know uh where are they all at, John? I mean, I, I, what, you know, all these aliens are everywhere. <laughs> the counter to that is the vastness <laughs> of time. You know, say we lived in a gigantic populated universe where there was advanced life on every planet out there, all the planets that we've seen a billion years ago. And say we're not in that era now. Right. You have, it's like a pin. It's like a little. Boat. We have to hit both the high populations and at the right time. But and, I would think there at least be litter. So like, you got to see their trash laying around, you know, from these, from oh, some remnants. Do you, is that what you think we're going to get with James Webb? You think we're going to get a deeper oh, look? I think we're already there. It's like the telescope in Chile, the first one that could detect interstellar objects entering the solar system. Mm -hmm. It was on for four days when we spotted Amuamua. Amuamua was interesting. I think you actually told us about it last time because uh, yeah. we thought it changed direction. It did. It actually, well, it had an outgassing event and changed course. Now, the big debate is what is that outgassing event? Was it a hydrogen? Was it. John, for, for anyone who hasn't seen the, the previous episode, can you talk about Oumuamua? Oh, Oumuamua is the first essentially interstellar object to come into our solar system. And it just made a pass through and was gone. But it had a bunch of weird properties to it that they couldn't, and they still haven't explained. The debate is raging on. A lot of formerly very conservative, serious scientists announced it had to be an, of manufactured origin, huh. simply because of the densities and the size, it could not be a natural object. And then wow. a bunch of other scientists said no, and they developed various theories of stuff it could be. It could be frozen solid hydrogen, a, mile, a molecule thick, 50 feet long. No what? one knows how that exists, but it would reflect the right right amount of light and could be deflected by outgassing to reflect the course change that Oumuamua made. So it was a, the entire, so it was 50 feet long, but a molecule wide? That's just one of the uh, competing concepts for what it was. That's <laughs> that nuts. An amazingly thin, pure hydrogen object is the leading natural phenomenon like say a sliver off of a primordial pluto honestly i would wow. like to i would just like to think it was aliens that were stopping by and was like hey we should go see you know say hello to them and then they were saw our like i don't know 2016 election we're like nope we're gonna see you later 
the most striking thing is its speed. Mm -hmm. You know, we think it just buzzed right through the universe. But it actually was a thing called, I'm going to get the term wrong, uh, solar velocity zero. What is that? We, we, it did not fly through our solar system. It was sitting stationary in space, and the solar system uh, flew through it. Whoa. What? What? Relative to <laughs> yeah. our solar system. Yeah. Not relative to the galaxy or anything like that. It was stationary, and we flew through it. And nobody knows how an object could actually do that or actually hit that, you know, be at that relative velocity. So there's all these questions around it. And that's, we found it only three days after we turned the only telescope that could see things like that got turned on. So we're just starting to look out there. You know, it's almost like we're in New York City. We blinked our eyes for a billionth of a second. Yeah. We didn't see anybody. Oh, there's nobody there. <laughs> huh. you <know>? Yeah, <laughs> that's nuts. So what are the current resources on Mars and how can we utilize them? By not going there. We need to go <laughs> there. <laughs> when did you see Venus? Great answer. Guy. I'm a Venus guy. I think we should go to Venus. I told you this. We were actually writing uh, this <laughs> these questions and I was like, I remember John telling us that he's a Venus guy. We need more Venus questions. It's what are the advantage of going to Venus over Mars? Let's hear, let's hear the argument. Well, they always say Venus is the hell world. It's got the high temperature and high pressure. Mm -hmm. But we've ha known how to handle that since the 50s. Mm -hmm. You know, a bathysphere or the Alvin on the bottom of the ocean, the submersible, handles four times the pressure as the surface of Venus. Wow. And the pressure and the temperature you can handle with a good pair of oven gloves. It's not that hot. Really? Slightly. It's about the same temperature, not of a conventional oven, but of a ceramic oven. I thought it was far hotter on Venus. Oh, it's still 900 degrees. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty hot. <laughs> you can buy a ceramic film that has tools you can use in it that can handle that. What's a more hostile environment, Mars surface or Venus? Mars has the high radiation loads, the same as an interstellar interplanetary space. And there's a lot of theories of how we hmm. in the future handle that, but we don't know yet. So we actually don't know how to handle that problem, but we do know how to handle pressure and temperature. So I was talking to Jeffrey Chancellor. Uh, he's like one of the lead interplanetary travel, space travel radiation expert. And he's been doing it for the last 20 years. He basically told me, he's like, yeah, we, we still have no clue how to stop all this radiation. And mm. whenever, like, say, let's, we're going from Earth to Mars, right? There's like eight months in between. What happens if there's a solar flare? They yeah, kind everybody of everybody dies. Huh? They everybody actually dies. No, not from if it's a if we get hit directly on. Yeah, you're gonna die. But um, if it's like slightly off, they're looking at maybe like two or three weeks where the radiation just takes a toll on the astronauts and they won't be able to perform their functions. So we're gonna have to automate a lot of these systems so they're if they do have to sit out for two weeks because. They're just laying around with radiation sickness. They could perform that. But one thing that he was telling about was basically all we got, if there's going to be a solar flare coming to them, all the crew has to surround the captain and just, like, sacrifice themselves to try and act like a meat shield. That's all we've got. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I'll take the role of captain, please. <laughs> meat shield. <laughs> that's that's exactly the way he said it. He was like, I mean, we have because you can have like a back room where it's got a lot of radiation protecting or extra metal, but when you're dealing with protons going not ninety nine percent, like going really fast, it just shoots right through metal. I mean, there's nothing you can do about it. It's nuts. Anyway, even through a we now have through lead as well. Yeah, yeah. If you have like um, electrons or just particles that are moving extremely fast, they'll just go right through. Like one of the issues for hydrogen uh, engines is whenever you put it in like a metal container, like a tank, right? You have to have special tanks because one, it's high pressure, but two, hydrogen will just like maneuver and leak through like the metal. Because it just like mm. maneuvers in between the metal and phases out. The hope is that the radiation goes straight yeah, through I, you, and it doesn't have an interaction. It's just it will get through anything. And that's what you want. You want it to go right through. You don't want it to to stop or you know or cause some interaction in your body. You want mm. it to pass through without interaction. Oh, know? radiation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It needs yeah. to be low enough ionizing that it's not creating an ionized path through your body. Yeah, if you it's know, ionizing, yeah, you're it's gonna smoke you. That's what that's one of the other other scenes in um. In, in the the uh, for all mankind, whenever she's in the radiation storm, and she runs out to grab her teammate, she takes her radiation dissimilar off and and leaves it in the cave. And I'm like, I'm sitting here as a radiation safety officer, going, no, <laughs> oh no, just wear it. We don't care. We just want to know what you're dosed to. But then I realized after she did it, because they'll take her her ability to fly back up there. And know? it's actually really cool. I'm not sure if you guys, if you guys haven't seen For All Mankind, go watch it. It's fascinating because whenever the solar flare starts hitting the moon, the ionization of the moon, like you start seeing like these waves appear, uh, like all the the lunar dust. Starts Sand getting, starts dancing. Yeah, it starts dancing. Camera. It's extremely beautiful but deadly. I'm just still rooting out on the whole meat shield. So now there's <laughs> lower than the red shirt on Star Trek. You have the red shirt. Make you the meat. <laughs> uh, that's my favorite part of Star Trek. Whenever they, they go off the, the ship and there's always the the new three guys you've never seen before, you know, in a different color shirt. You're like, oh, those guys are dead. <laughs> you're never seeing them again. What, what do you think we're going to need as far as um, careers go at, when we get to Mars? As, as far as, you know, the first, say, 25 people, 30 people, whatever it is, what do you think are going to be needed to just get that, that base group going? Oh, the number one thing, you need a, a whole bunch of project managers because everything's hmm. going to break. And you're going to have to come up with new ways of doing things, figuring things out, and you can't wait for a new tool to come in for this new problem. Right. So you're going to have to have guys that have experience, you know, not paper project managers, but actual project managers that have been in, right. you know, in the aerospace field, know the hardware, know how to pull a team together, fix stuff. That's mm. going to be your number one. So even more important than doctors or anything like that. Oh yeah. I think so. One of the uh, projects that one of my friends is working on is creating a bunch of VR training sets for the crew. So like, let's say, you know, the first crew goes to Mars, right? And during that Mars trip, the doctor dies, right? But somebody needs appendix surgery or something like that. They're making VR training sets so that they can operate in VR, learn how to operate on somebody in a pinch. And they're gonna save all those to like a solid state drive. So if there's ever like somebody's like, oh, he has appendicitis. Well, you can't 
there's going to be like a 40 minute delay between Earth and Mars. You can't say, okay, grab the red tool, wait 40 minutes, and then do it again. It has to be all local. So that's what they're doing is they're trying to teach people or create these programs to teach people how to do surgery whenever a surgeon's not there. Just in time matrix training. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How would a multi-planet species communicate and have, like, would we have, like, a multi-planetary internet system? How do you think that would work? Because, like, with Mars, right, you send 40 minutes that way, and then 40 minutes, or 20 minutes that way, 20 minutes back, that's 40 minutes. How do you think that would work? Do you think we would have an internet? I think it's going to be like talking to your grandma in 1950, <laughs> where, you know, all the communication took a month to get a letter back and forth, and somehow we survive. It's, for me, it's going to be interesting, because one of the things that causes cultural differences is space and time. And oh, yeah. it's, I wonder if we were able to have an internet, if that would, like, dampen it, you know, because, I don't know. I'm kind of worried that over a period of time, right? So, like, we initially spread out to a planet, right? And then we do it again and again and again. And as, like, the original human would not be... You, you couldn't tell, like, the other planet, planetary people from a human. And, and we would start, like, racial wars because of that, if that makes any sense. Like, people from Mars well, would think they're better than Earth, and then the Earth would think they're better than Mars, or... I said that's been a popular tradition of humanity for an awfully long time. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, sorry to, sorry to make things gloomy. It's just one of the things that's been bothering me recently. Didn't, John, didn't... We, we, we fast forward uh, a decade, right? And they say, hey, John, you've, you've done a lot for the, uh, the space industry. And, you know, uh, Elon changed his mind about going to Mars. He realized that Venus is the superior planet uh, to... to Know, make multi-planetary right uh and they, they invite you to to go to venus to uh to start a civilization what is one item that you have to bring with you you cannot leave it behind on earth my own spaceship because i wouldn't fly on one of those okay uh... there before them. <laughs> well they're taking you for free they're taking you for free all expense paid trip to venus okay they're talking to me right on their busted ass ship instead of my own. <laughs> but they're nice guys. Um, so I'll give. I'll go go ride with them. You said busted ass and, ship. I'm fucking done. <laughs> and I would have to bring my violin. Oh wow! Why? Um, so I could inflict my poor musicianship on others. No, those I, poor I, astronauts that ride with you are like, are oh, you? Oh free. yeah, the dude with <laughs> <No>. the violin. <laughs> Forget the crying baby. It's the guy in the violin on the starship that's way in the back that's pissing me off. I'll tell you what, you bring yeah, a violin with you on a spaceship, you better be good. <laughs> that's so is, is it is it to to inspire others? Is it to keep yourself occupied? Is it to share the joy of music? Is it uh, what would be the the, the reason behind? I, I find I have you? to play every day, and it helps keep me centered. Mm. So what do you play? A personal thing. I, what, what I'm mean? a very poor musician, so it definitely wouldn't be to soothe the others. With my <laughs> <laughs> you're, getting, you're, get, you're, you're getting EVA <laughs> right away. <laughs> so what what population do you think suited like physically and psychologically to do, endure a mission on Mars? Like we were talking about nuclear submarine um, officers and the, you know that are you know people that have that type of experience would be good candidates. But what do you what do you think? Like what what sect of people would make the best? You know, group to send up. Oh, I think 
again, I think it's going to be kind of like the Arctic colonies because it's going to be look more like an outpost mm. than a city. And, you know, you can get the, the research outposts that have a couple thousand people in them in the Arctic. And so you have a lot of highly educated introverts and the two or three extroverts that are going mad and can't wait for the next <laughs> boat. Out. So, <laughs> That's yeah. funny. That's funny. And I think we're going to see, at least initially, you know, those same kind of kind of issues. You know, a lot of really driven, scientifically minded introverts. Mm-hmm. Mm. It tends to work out okay. I mean, honestly, if, if we can't figure out radiation, I don't see why we would want to go to Mars over Venus. It, it seems like, I mean, both are, both are hellscapes, right? <laughs> sorry, sorry to you and sorry to Elon. But, um, yeah, I mean, well, I guess the, the, probably the, potentially the biggest issue is, does uh, Venus have any good resources for us waiting there? There's clearly no water, right? It's all boiled up. Yeah, but it's a whole planet. You think of what are the resources on Earth? Geologically, mm. they're almost identical. Oh. Mm. So all the resources of Earth, you're likely to have in Venus. But water. Where would that, what about water? Yeah. Yeah, water is going to be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> well, so. <laughs> that might be. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the thing that you put on the brochure, John. You don't just leave out, hey, there's no water. Good luck. Have a great time. <laughs> Tons of resources. What about the water? It is a low-tech solution. You know, like the radiation, the fact that you're in a very low-G environment on Mars. Eventually, we'll figure that out, but we don't know how to figure it out. The Venus has problems. That heat is a problem. The pressure is a problem. The lack of water is a problem. But they're all low-tech known solutions. Bring it in. Well, now... It's It's only two weeks away. Now, I just want to say... What Elon wants us to do is go live in the volcanic or the <clears throat> the volcanic tunnels, like the vacant volcanic tunnels underground. That's what they want to do. So I mean, that's pretty low low technology. They're like, hey, let's just move into the ground, dig a hole, dig a hole, it. live in live in the ground. Yeah, and that may work, but they don't know because the the surface has been irradiated for millions and millions of years. Mm-hmm. How far does it go down? You know, they're going to have to go. It is all that soil activated? after millions of years and you can't just bury the soil on top it's like how the, moon, so, the debate is still out about that they were talking about burying the colonies on the moon mm-hmm. from the radiation then there's some of the apollo data came back saying a lot of the soil is activated and mm-hmm. the word is still out on that one what what is easier to do as, as far as is it easier to, to which planet is easier to i guess terraform if that's the right way of putting it um Venus potentially doesn't have to be. There is a layer of the atmosphere. If you go start going higher and higher in the atmosphere, the pressure gets lower and lower and lower. And the pressure or the chemical composition is actually driven by pressure. And you get to about a 14 PSI layer, about 60 miles up, you know, way up in the atmosphere. It's primarily a nitrogen oxygen layer. And it could be the only other place in the solar system where you could take your helmet off. Huh. So what if instead of going to the surface of Venus, we're in an airship? You lived in the atmosphere. But how would that work? And there's some proposals for this, and NASA's got a couple of proposals for that. I guess I'm about to read the proposals. 
Yeah. Or just watch I mean, the Jetsons. Would an airship live in the atmosphere of Venus? The airship could live in the atmosphere. I think it's all the airship orbit stuff works easier on Venus because the atmosphere is thicker. What's the temperature there? The temperature is in the 90s. Wow, it sounds like a great place to hang out. It's yeah. probably pretty dry. Probably pretty Good dry. temperature you could breathe. You probably wouldn't want to walk around completely outside all the time. Now, do you not have the protection uh, of the atmosphere from radiation if you're that if you're up there? Oh, because there's still enough atmosphere above you. Okay, yeah. okay. So you saw that's the, the Jetsons. You. You're starting to approach Earth-like radiation levels there. That's just so the Jetsons. Up. Yeah, yeah, you, Jetsons. Yeah. They're stilted, you yeah. know. Who knows oh, how yeah, far yeah. up they are? This one's a kind of out of lot, a left field. It's kind of one of our last questions. Uh, well, not the last question, but the second to last question. John, do you have? Do you know anything about DMT? DMT. I don't know the acronym. It's a extremely strong psychedelic. It's it's like acid, but way way more. Um, your body naturally produces it whenever you dream or right before you die. And would you be willing to take it if you were able to speak to aliens? No, because I would discard the premise. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, what's the premise? The premise is that speaking with aliens is purely a mental activity. I would say it's also a physical activity. When you meet someone, <laughs> you, them, you interact with them, you touch them. Um, if something's happening on purely a mental level, I would question the val validity of what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Is that really what I'm doing? Yeah. I can't see, touch, mm -hmm. you know, talk to him, now, shot by lasers or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any question or topic that we haven't asked you yet that you think we should ask? What's going on the next flight? Because it's the mundane stuff where all the real action happens. Okay. You know, we talk about all the exotic stuff, but like, and I brought the prop, so I got to show it off. Okay, cool. hell yeah, hell yeah, hell yeah. This is one of our helium valves for the airship. You imagine a tube hooked up to there and a tube hooked up to there. Okay. This, this is a draft version of the valve, so it doesn't have the O-rings or things on it. And it's just a little poppet valve that opens and closes. But we're moving away from servo-driven valves and moving to pneumatic valves. So this okay. is a pneumatic piston. And it's hooked up to a tank below, and it drives the piston, and we count how many times it fires, and we got a video on it. But we've been doing this on the last three or four missions. And we'll probably have about seven missions where we're flying various versions of the valve. And it's just testing, testing. And valves aren't very glamorous, not very exciting. It's not like space colonization. It's just a valve. Yeah. But it's doing this kind of stuff that drives the program. It's all the mundane. You got to get the valve working. You got to get this piece of hardware. You got to get this computer working. And it's testing and flying and flying over again. And this flight that we're coming up will be our 200th mission. Wow. And about 13 years ago, we had our 100th uh, high altitude run. And so we're actually, so we kind of made a celebration of it. And we're inviting team members and people, because, you know, people come and go, get jobs. So we're kind of inviting all the old gang back, kind of getting the band back together. Mm -hmm. That's cool. And getting everybody for this 200th mission uh, coming up in November. Yeah. Now, what does that valve actually do? Like, I mean, obviously it's a valve, but what is it used for exactly? You open it up, you turn on the blower, and you pump helium from one cell in the airship to another cell in the airship. Oh. You pump forward, and the airship nose comes up you point the helium back and then tail comes up oh wow 
Oh. And it rolls, move it, pump it to the right hand. So there's no control surfaces on our vehicles. We, we handle the orientation of the vehicle with helium management. So <laughs> are there any social media accounts that you want us to shout out? Or, I mean, obviously you got the 200th launch coming up. The, the big eagle, I post a lot on Twitter. Oh yeah, if love the tweets. jperospace.com. There's links on the top to our video, our YouTube channel, our um, Twitter channel, and all the other, other guys, our Facebook. But I try to put a bunch of tweets up every day of pictures of what we're doing, just so people can see and it's easy. Oh yeah. And we're putting new video every week. Um, the last video is a commercial we did for, we flew a slot machine for a casino. <laughs> <laughs> much fun because they took the video of the slot machine flying to the edge of space and they got all you know a bunch of dealers and everybody together put them in white shirts with the 60s thick glasses put them on mission control consoles filmed it in black and white all smoking like oh, they're hardcore cool. control guys to and do a countdown to launch the balloon and it was just <laughs> all tongue-in-cheek they did the slow astronaut walk with the sunglasses <laughs> <laughs> A lot of your content's great. I love it. Is that is that online somewhere or people yes, can online. Find it? I posted that one uh, last night. Okay. Oh, okay. Everybody, everybody watching this podcast cool. has some homework to do, it. especially on uh, John. Yeah. I'm gonna retweet that. That's really one cool. that's coming out in about three days. Is another meeting an astronaut, but this is one that didn't go well. Oh no! I'm so sorry. But it, it's going to be called "Why My Favorite Astronaut." is check off. Okay. Okay. And wow. I know I'm a real astronaut, but you'll see why in the video. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, we're, I'll be watching it uh, as soon as it comes out. This is going to be exciting. Cool. This podcast is going to be out after, after that video comes out. So you should watch that first video about the slot machine. And then you should also watch this astronaut meeting with John. Um, John, Thank you so much for coming on this podcast. It, it's really a delight having you. Uh, I know my internet's been screwy. I thought we were over the internet problems, but I guess, you know, <laughs> life life's interesting and throws curveballs in your way. For everybody listening to this, thank you so much for listening. Uh, don't forget to like and subscribe to our channel, and you can also follow us on Twitter at Absurd Curiosity. Yeah, John, thank you so much. It's been fun. It's great having you on again. Yeah. Maybe we'll do it while we're doing a life support system test while I'm all wired up and see if I'm going to die. That would, that would be, be awesome. That would be, that and, would be and, awesome. and I was trying to ask that in the beginning. Are you the one that's going in? I'm the one. I have to be the one because I can't put an employee or a volunteer in there because of, because of OSHA. Because of OSHA. So I'm huh? As long as you're an owner operator, you're not an employee. Right? right. That's and interesting. Wow. Order pizza during the test. And, and they sit there and eat it in front of you? Uh, <laughs> oh my god wow. and how long will you be in there again this will be the six hour test six hours Ooh, that's fun Ooh, six it's hours cool. breathing air that you've made yourself <laughs> <laughs> get all your farts out before yeah. you get in right yeah. <laughs> anyway thank you so much john for coming on bye guys bye <laughs>